Hey everyone, you're listening to the 107 podcast where we get together every fortnight and sometimes more often to talk about technology, business and the humans in it. I'm your host Ivan Stegic. My guest today is Bob Collins, who has been described as one of the most humble, honest voices in media. He was at Minnesota Public Radio for more than 25 years, serving various roles, including senior editor of news, and also he was the creator of the NewsCut blog. He's now been retired for more than a year and is still active in providing his commentary on Twitter. He loves the game of baseball, and he's built his own plane that actually flies. Hey, Bob, welcome to the show. It's an honor for me. How nice of you to to think I was worth talking to. Oh, come on. <laughs> <laughs> well, you said I was humble, so that was my <laughs> that was that was my my shot at giving it a whirl. Well, you got it. I think you totally nailed that. <laughs> <laughs> it's online. It's in an article. It says most humble, honest voice in media, and well, I would believe that. So I'll be darned. Uh, I'll have to. I'll have to find that article. We'll link show, it in the, we'll link it it in the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so you're from Massachusetts, and uh, according to Twin Cities Business Magazine, you got your start in 1977 in Southbridge, Mass. Um, Carter administration, LA Dodgers, the World Series champions. How did you become interested in the news? I was already interested in the news. It's actually what I wanted to do um, most of my life. I actually, I really wanted to be an airline pilot. Really? So I had a big plan that I would go to the Air Force Academy and learn to fly and and uh, then become an uh, airline pilot. But back then you needed twenty twenty vision uncorrected. And I didn't have that. And so radio was kind of my fallback. Um, but I had been all the time growing up, uh, I had been interested in the news. I rarely uh, sat with my family for dinner. I would put it on a tray and take it into the TV room and, and watch uh, the news. And um, so my family hardly ever saw me uh, when the news was on. And so this job in Southbridge came up. Uh, about a year after I graduated from college, and it was as a disc jockey, which I'd never done, uh, six uh, five days a week. But then on the sixth day, they let you be a news guy, and so let I, you I, be I, a I news guy. <laughs> yeah. So Saturday morning, you know, big news time. So I would work my five days, be very bad at being a disc jockey, and and get up early on Saturday morning and and uh, get to get to do the news. And did you do uh, like investigative journalism? No, no, that was just that was just uh, you know top of the hour newscasts, you know, and reading wire copy. I didn't really do any. I mean, I'm not an investigative reporter. It's not something. I just don't have that talent. Uh, and I didn't even get into that side of things until uh, several years later when I was working down in Boston. We broke the story of the U.S. attorney there, uh, the deepest penetration into the Italian mob in Boston in history, essentially broke it up uh, in the North End. And um, so I, I backbone as an editor, uh, I was off the air by then. I was just a full-time editor. Uh, that was my first exposure to running a unit that was doing investigative work. 
And so then I kind of everything spiraled from there and your evolution in the politics of news or the news of politics. You know, the, this was a, a great radio station that I worked at in Boston in the 80s. Uh, AM station back when AM was king mm-hmm. and it was a great radio market but they laid everybody off in the newsroom most everybody off in the newsroom and so I was out of work um, I did some fill-in work as a writer for the local TV station and I hated television news I did I could never figure it out but then I got an offer to go down to uh, New York as an editor at the uh, RKO radio network in Times Square. And I worked there for a couple of years, and then I went back to the uh, Berkshires because my father-in-law had a uh, couple of small radio stations up there and wanted to get an FM license for one of the markets and asked me to join him and be their vice president of programming. I think he really wanted to get my wife back close to home. (laughs) (laughs) So then shortly thereafter, you moved to Minnesota? I had none of that. I did. (laughs) What was the, um, why did you come to Minnesota? You know, I was active on the old CompuServe journalism forum uh, back then. I was one of the moderators. Oh. Um, At that time, there was a recession in Massachusetts. This would have been in uh, 91. We were losing our shirt on the radio station, Mm. and uh, I was working for family, and I didn't want to be that guy working for the family who was only still working because he was in the family. Mm. And so I told my father-in-law, I think I'm going to try to get back into the news side of things full time. And he said, that's a good idea. (laughs) (laughs) And Lauren Amoto was the news director at uh, NPR at the time, and he was also on the J Forum. And he said, have you ever considered Minnesota? And I hadn't, oddly enough. And uh, But they flew me out, and they put me up at the St. Paul Hotel. And I thought, wow, this is really cool. This, I came out in March. Ooh. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> but I really well, needed the work. <laughs> yeah. And then uh, they didn't make an offer. Uh, but then they called a few weeks later, and they said, uh, we want your wife to come out with you this time. And I thought, oh, okay, that's good. I'm going to get an offer. And when they flew us both out, put us up at the St. Paul again, gave us a car wow. uh, yeah, to explore the area. We had a great dinner over at Lauren's house with uh, Kate Moose, and they still didn't make an offer. What? <laughs> I know. And uh, I, went, I remember on the plane ride back home, looking at my wife and saying, what the heck was that? And I came to find that that was kind of the NPR culture where they're very deliberative and take a long time to make easy decisions. Mm. And, uh, but they eventually did. So, and it worked out really well. Yes, it did. You were there for over 25 years, weren't 27 you? years, yeah. 27 years. I figured, wow. you know, because that was my first public radio gig. So I figured uh, I'll just work there for a couple years and then try to get something at CCO, you know, <laughs> something I'm more comfortable with, you know, commercial radio. Mm-hmm. And then I ended up uh, doing that. And I came out as an editor. They didn't have, I guess, a full-time editor per se at the time. So I, I took on that role. I remember um, the very first time I met you was at public radio camp back in 2008. Yeah. And we were we were bright-eyed and bushy-tailed yeah. about how news and the internet were going to collide and yeah. how we were going to be all local and we're going to target people with specific events and so on. And Yeah. Those were the days, weren't they, Bob? 
I was just thinking about that this morning. Those were really the golden days of news on the internet because we were so uh, creative, frankly, and we were we took risks and we wanted to tell stories in different ways. And we did, you know. I mean, we we created little apps that helped explain things. We didn't just slap mm-hmm. up a radio copy and throw a picture in and walk away. We really explored ways to use the medium that was available in a, a supportive role to the core medium, and uh, it was it was great fun. But you know, part of the reason it was. And that we were able to take those risks is because it was an infant medium. And there really was no risk because we didn't have that big of an audience. And so we weren't risking anything. Mm-hmm. But once we ended up with an audience and, and all of a sudden you had, you know, more people saying no or you can't do this or there's a resource problem or something like that. And it's a little bit difficult in a, in a media that where the Internet side of things, the digital side of things... Uh, wasn't the core medium because you you know we were always trying to teach people why this was so important and ultimately I think we did some really creative and great things but looking back now I think it's pretty boring <laughs> you know it's just text and text and photos and um, you know there's a few videos every now and again that are fairly compelling um, but it's just it's not it doesn't feel the same to me. Do you think that public radio is fundamentally still a radio-driven organization, oh, yeah. or is it yeah. a digital company? Well, now? I'm sure it changes from from company to company. At NPR, and of course, I haven't been at NPR in a year, I would say it's very much still a radio operation. Mm. And, you, and you begin to learn what they value, frankly, when they lay people off and rededicate resources. Uh, Chris Worthington, who came over from the Pioneer Press in 2006 uh, and was the news boss for many years, really built up the digital side of things. And uh, when they had a big bloodletting in 2015, I think it was, they basically undid all of that, moved Chris over to the national programming side, and then took a lot of those resources and put it in a radio product in California. Um, and so that was a statement is saying, here's, here's what we value. And what we value is, uh, you know, these radio products. The um, prevalence of, I guess, distrust of the media and this yeah. phrase that I hate hearing, fake news. Yeah. Do you think that's something we could have predicted in the industry? Do you think that's something that we could have seen coming down the road? Or do you think that's kind of hit the market and, and just sort of blasted everything with great surprise? Well, it's a little complicated. I don't think we saw or could have seen the extent to which this cult of denial has been created. You know, recall back in when, you know, we were at radio camp, how we were going to give everybody a voice. And we were going to take the patriarchy away Mm -hmm. from the news gathering process. And we made a fundamental, uh, fatal flaw in our thinking, which was everybody deserved a voice. What we ended up doing was giving a voice to this dark side of ourselves. And in so doing, we 
allowed people to see that they were not alone in their dark thinking. And uh, in a way, we helped them organize and created this, frankly, monster to democracy, I think, has just has really threatens us in ways that we never anticipated. But I think it all goes back to giving people that enabling. voice, enabling. And of course, they were very good at drowning out all of those voices. I right up until the last minute at NPR, I was convinced that a good comment section was possible. Uh, but right near the end, I realized it wasn't. Yeah, it really did, didn't it? But that's where it all started right now. And, of course, it's migrated onto other platforms, yeah. So. What do you think we can do? What should we be doing to bring back the trust in journalism? I think we have to recognize that we are in an age that all of the old norms and the established principles no longer apply. So you have a media wants to build up this trust by not having a, or at least giving away that they have a dog in the fight. Well, the fight now is literally the survival of democracy. And I think it's okay to have a dog in that fight. And I think it's okay for the media to lead that fight. And it's, for the most part, not willing to do that. I think so, too. It holds on to this concept of, and this is a word I've always hated, objectivity, because I think some of the values of Murrow, who is, let's face it, the godfather of journalism, I think a lot of that got corrupted somewhere along the line that has prevented people in the news business from leading that defense of, what I call the defense of democracy. And so you, that's how you end up with whataboutism and, you know, this balance thing where you give the dark side a voice as if it has, uh, yeah, as if it has a, a legitimate uh, right and you amplify this cult of darkness. Um, so until that changes, and maybe we're seeing a little bit of that now, uh, but I think too often uh, media organizations have just backed away any time that anybody yells bias, or especially liberal bias in the case of public radio, and have, have really ignored their, their true responsibility uh, because mm-hmm. they just don't want to make anybody angry. And, uh, and as a result of making them angry, losing the eyeballs and losing the clicks and losing the supposed engagement, right? I think that's right. So I don't know to answer the question whether there's anything we can do. I mean, yes, there's stuff we can do. Are we going to do it? Boy, I think we're really running out of time. We are. I, I agree with that. Yeah. Why did you start Newscut? And and for <laughs> and for the rec for the record, yeah. that's my understanding. You started Newscut. Yeah. Can yeah. you explain to our listeners what Newscut is for those who haven't been on the side and why, what's the origin story there? Newscut was never able to be defined, uh, but it was a uh, blog, a newsroom blog. They they gave me complete free reign to do whatever I wanted to do with it. And I wanted to tell people stories and really confront mm. things that maybe the news side didn't want to have confronted. And a lot of it was uh, silly. Some of it was serious. It was just a little bit of everything. 
And it was in the first person, so it had a personality to it, which is very unpublic radio-like. Uh, I had actually taken uh, the summer of 2006 off because the boss at that time of NPR News had zeroed out my capital budget. I was managing editor of digital at that time. He had zeroed out my capital budget for the seventh straight year. What? So I had all these things I wanted to do, and I couldn't do them because I couldn't get the budget, you know, because that was all going to radio. He was a radio guy. Mm. So I just couldn't, I couldn't get the resources, and I was going to quit. And I think it was Bill Wareham or somebody down there had said, why don't you take time off? So I took the summer off. And while I was away, they hired Chris Worthington. The big news guy left. They hired Chris Worthington and Mike Resler, who is the is still at NPR as their digital boss. Resler basically took my job, and then Worthington wanted me to go do this blog full-time, because I had gone off to political conventions in the past, and I had always been able to find interesting kind of wacky things or serious things told in a different way. He wanted me to do that full-time. So I guess there were either two uh, theories on how news cut started. One is they had this idea, and they wanted me to do it. The other is they wanted me out of the job I had so Resler could do it. <laughs> and this is what they this is what they came up with. So, uh, you know, I don't know which one is accurate, but they both led to, I, I think, a pretty good product. And so, Chris, uh, you know, we talked a long time about it, and I had uh, I went back to work in September, and for three months I would I would be doing news cut without anybody being able to see it and running everything by him. And he said, we want this to be just short pieces and don't write in the first person. So <laughs> I, I, <laughs> I immediately started writing in the first person. <laughs> and the idea was I'm basically having a conversation, right, with the right. readers. And then we're going to continue to engage in the comment section. Mm -hmm. And in that section, I'm going to have opinions, I guess is the word people would use. Uh, Chris used to say observations. <laughs> um, and, um, you know, and really challenge people and challenge things. Because in terms of the serious side of, of news cut, how many times do you listen to the news and you hear like a news cut of, of some politician saying something? And you know it's completely BS. Right. Uh, but because of this corrupted Murrowism. <laughs> no one can call uh, it they, off. They, they, yeah, they put it on the air and nobody calls it out, even though everybody knows what it is. So I tried to use it for that. The other thing I really tried to do is to give people a better uh, picture of, of Minnesota and their world. Uh, you know, public radio news in general is crime and politics, mostly. And that's yeah. not the world we really live in. I mean, no. the real world we live in, people doing, trying to get through the day or doing interesting things. It's kind of that whole tapestry of the community. And I tried to do posts and talk to people, try to tap into that. People seemed to respond to that at one point. The blog was great. I mean, it just, it was the most popular page on the NPR site for uh, 11 years, 12 years, whatever it was. I don't think it ever really got a great deal of support in the newsroom because it was so non-news. Non-traditional. I guess. Yeah, non-traditional, I guess is a better word. I absolutely uh, loved it. And so it had some fans, but I think people were uncomfortable with it.
Sorry. I think people were uncomfortable with it, um, and I think that was a good yeah. thing. I, I loved it. Yeah. I very much appreciated your tweets very early on, asking people for, yeah. what should I talk about today? I'm, I'm low on ideas. Help me out. That was refreshing. I spent a fair amount of time reading the articles. I clicked through a dozen, at least a dozen times in each of the articles, and I yeah. skimmed the comments. The comments were hard. The I, like. The comments yeah. are just so hard to deal with sometimes. But I am glad they archived it, and I'm glad that it's still out there. Yeah, it's. Um, I don't know how long it's going to be out there, because every time they change a server um, or redesign a page, a little piece of it falls away. Mm. Um, but my youngest son, when I retired, had paid somebody to scoop up all of the content from the site, basically recreate the MPR site and gave it to me on a flash drive. Oh, isn't so, that great? Yeah, yeah. Good. I, I miss some of those stories. I, I don't miss writing it because it was hard. Mm. It was, I mean, the writing part is easy, but finding what to write about is, is uh, hard. I miss how good I felt after talking to people. My favorite, I think, was uh, the Renshaw, Minnesota girls basketball team in, I think it was 2012. And they had just played uh, maybe Barnum or Carlton or somebody like that. And they lost uh, 65 to nothing. Whoa. And it made the, yeah, and it made the AP wire. Uh, they immediately became the butt of jokes. Mm. Uh, Leno at that time was on and he made fun of them. And I thought, because what I tried to do with NewsCut is just look at things in a different way. And I thought, I bet there's a good story here. So I called the coach and I said, can I come up and talk to you and your team and meet your team? And she was happy to have me do that. And uh, they were just great kids. And there weren't very many of them because in a, in a small Minnesota town, one graduating class can wipe out a sport. Yeah. They had a lot of junior varsity kids, but none of the, everybody showed up for practice every day. Nobody quit the team, even though people even in their own school were making fun of them. They went on to uh, lose another game, 100-12. to 12. They didn't win any games that year, but I got a good couple of pieces out of them. Yeah, they were just great kids. In the last few years of NewsCut, I thought, I really need to go find those kids, do find out whatever happened to them, because I'm sure they did great in life. They all had the right attitude. I miss those stories. I miss uh, I miss how good I felt after doing those. I miss I miss reading them as well. I was always amazed at how you were able to generate that much content. Yeah, thank you. Because I mean, you know, like you said, we'd ask. Everybody knows somebody, uh, and everybody has a great story. Uh, they just don't think they're quote unquote newsworthy because everybody has been force fed this definition of what is news. Newsworthy. Yeah. Um, and I used to have this thing where I, I said, if you give me seven questions to ask you, I will find something that people will want to read about. And um, and I used to speak to journalism classes over at the U, and I would that would be the exercise we'd do. I'd say, talk to this person next to you, come up with seven questions. And they would say, well, what are the seven questions? I said, that's up to you. <laughs> But but the key really isn't the questions. The key is whether you're listening to the answers. Mm. And if you're listening to the answers, they will always, always, always give you something that you can jump on and explore further. And uh, that's true with everybody. 
You just have to listen to the answers. I'm doing my best to listen to you as much as I can, Bob. <laughs> With exceptions. <laughs> I should point that out. There are exceptions. <laughs> can I give you just one quick example of that? Of course. I was at Denver uh, for the 2008 convention. And, uh, and when I covered political conventions, I rarely went into the arena because I, do, I don't think they're very interesting. I think the people who are around arenas and in town are much more interesting. And plus, we had sent a big contingent over there because um, we were having the Republican convention at St. Paul. And um, it was the night Hillary was speaking. And I thought, well, maybe I'll go see her. But there was a long line. I said, nah, forget it. I'm going to go into town and get something to eat. So I walked into this McDonald's, which was empty, except for this one guy and his wife, elderly couple. And they were ordering at the counter. I ordered at the counter. And then we, we were both going to our seats. And, and they apologized for moving so slow. So, of course, I sat next to them. And I, he was a, a delegate to the convention. I said, well, aren't you supposed to be down at the arena? And he had left his heart medication at the uh, hotel. So they decided to just go back to the hotel. He was, a, uh, he was actually a Hillary uh, delegate, not an Obama delegate. Mm. And so we started chatting. And I finally asked him, I said, well, where are you from? And he said, I'm from Otumwa, Iowa. And the only thing I know about Otumwa, Iowa, is that's where Radar O'Reilly was from in the TV series MASH and the book <laughs> MASH. And I said, well, you know what I have to ask you now? And he stuck out his hand and he said, I'm Radar. And it turns out he is the guy on whom the character was based. You're kidding. Nope. Uh, so I got a good post out of that. And it all started with just being interested in um, in the guy in the first place and his wife and listening to the answers. That's amazing. Um, so, yeah. Otumwa, Iowa. Otumwa, Iowa. Oh, I, I ha- He's still there. Is he really? Yeah, I looked him up the other day. Really? That's amazing. I can't remember his name. It was Don something. Don Adams, Don Johnson, something. I don't know what it was, but amazing. Nice guy. Yeah. Now you love baseball. You love the game of baseball. I do. You have been an usher at Target Field. I recall yeah. you bemoaning the escapades of the of the Cleveland team <laughs> on Twitter. Yeah. Yeah. But I've read I've read a story about how you first got interested in baseball. And it was something, it was a story about your experience at Fenway Park. Could you tell that story? Okay. Is this with the usher? Yes. Um, and yeah. no, no. Well, is it, I think your mom was involved here. Is that, that's the yeah, same story, that's right. right? Yes. Yeah. Same story. Same story. Um, I was a uh, Cleveland fan uh, because my older brother was. None of us are from Ohio. I was um, wondering about that. But I was a big fan of my older brother. I mean, my dad and both my mom and dad originally were from Ohio, but they, uh, you know, my dad couldn't put it in the rearview mirror fast enough when World War II broke out. Which So he, met, he was at uh, the Army base in Massachusetts when he met my mom. And, um, but my dad, my brother, my big brother was a fan of the Indians, whose name we recognize is awful, and we're glad that they're going to change it. So I went to Fenway a lot to when they were in town. And so we'd sit out in the bleachers. And at that time, the bleachers were a dollar. Hmm. And uh, so I went out. Uh, my mom and I went down to a game. And, and uh, before the game, we're sitting there. And an usher kept motioning me down. 
And so my mom said, go on down. So I went down, and in his, out of his suit coat, because back then the ushers wore uh, coats, he pulls out a real baseball, mm. and he gave it to me, which was, that's about as good as it gets. Yeah. And um, so I went back, and, and uh, my mom and I agreed to say that I caught a home run ball. <laughs> um, a lie which stood only until a few years ago. Huh? The lie was that <laughs> I caught broke the, the lie. Was that I caught this ball. It was a home run, and I caught it when, in fact, the usher gave it to <laughs> me. <laughs> so, but we told all my brothers and sisters yeah. that I had caught Jose Cardinal's home run that oh night. Oh my gosh! Yeah, that was a lie. But that's when I thought this usher thing is pretty good, and so uh, I always wanted to be a baseball usher because of that. Um, a few years ago, uh, I got the job over at Target Field as an usher. And the first thing I did was I showed up early and I sat out in left field for batting practice to get baseballs to give to kids during the game. And I still do that. Well, I'm not doing it this year, obviously, but um, it's, it's the greatest feeling in the world to give the kid a baseball. I, I, I want to do that as well. It, it's... yeah. I mean, I grew up watching baseball um, yeah. in Africa on the TV when I could get it. I mostly watched yeah. cricket, but when I finally immigrated to the U.S. and um, and my wife was pregnant with our second kid, uh, she was on bed rest, and that was when I fell in love with the twins because that was all we could get on the TV at the time. And it's it's it would be awesome to be an usher. Yeah, it is. It's it's not hard. I mean, you know, you get the occasion. You have to the hardest part. You know, you're supposed to hold fans back uh, while a player is at yeah. that, so, so that at Target Field, you know, the way it's set up, if people are in the aisles during an at bat, people can't see. Right. And so we hold them back, and you'd be surprised at how belligerent. Uh, uh, people can be I bet. Uh, when you just ask them to observe a simple baseball courtesy. Uh, but for the most part, people are great. And, and the other thing I like about it is people, I guess, who follow me on Twitter, I used to say, well, I'm working this section tonight. And they'd come up and, and chat during the game. And I like that. That's a lot of fun. What do you think of the reduced season and the new format, the base runner on second when there's a when there's a tie? What, yeah. what do you think of the the development? No, I don't like. I don't. I don't care for that. I'm kind of a purist. I I think it's funny how you know people just want the games to get over sooner. <laughs> I'm thinking, uh, are you really a baseball fan if your whole reason for going is f- so you can leave quickly? <laughs> uh, but. Um, you know, there are parts of the game that I think drag. I, I don't like the fact that the game has become just home runs and strikeouts. Mm. I don't like batters stepping out after every pitch to get themselves dressed again. Well, undressed and then dressed, right? You they know, take off, they, undressed, they take it yeah, all off, right. then they put yeah, it back. They go through this whole thing. You know, it's like, come on, man, get in there. I, I, you know, I don't care. I don't care for the seven inning double headers. I'm glad. Know that they're having a season. It looks like they're going to be able to complete it. I was just thinking the other night while watching the Cleveland game, 
you know, if if the Cleveland should win a World Series, which they won't, but if they should, I'll. <laughs> you know, my whole dream is just give me one before one. I die, yeah. and I'm really running out of time here. <laughs> so I, I'm I'm in no position to have high standards for my world championship. <laughs> <laughs> I was watching the game the other night and getting all exercised about it. So I guess I'm in mid-season form, even though it's a shortened season. Yeah, I, I agree. I was just talking to my son about it yesterday, and we're like, you know, it's so weird to be watching these games and have that fake crowd sound and have all the stadiums empty. I don't empty. care for that. I don't care for that yeah. either. I would just like to hear the banter from the from the dugouts. Yes, play that. Yeah, and I think that I think the players uh, were concerned that all of their obscenities <laughs> and stuff would get on the air without the fake crowd noise. Right. But it's difficult for me, you know, because I'm basically deaf and wear hearing aids. The crowd noise is really difficult mm. uh, when you're trying to hear the announcers. And it's dumb. <laughs> it is dumb. Anybody. I agree with that. This it's dumb. dumb. <laughs> my, <laughs> my son was saying like, you know, Dad, there's going to be a World Series champion this year. And there isn't yeah. going to be a crowd to see them win it. I'm like, yeah. Yeah. How yeah. is that going to happen? Well, but you know, baseball has been less and less about the in-game experience, and more and more about the broadcasts, anyway. Um, and we were, and none of us were gonna we're probably gonna get World Series tickets anyway. That's true. Um, so, well, I mean, know, as an I, usher, wouldn't you have some sort of access to the World Series game? Right? Come on. Yeah, yeah, I could put in for it. And I'd probably. Uh, get it? Um, I mean, I did work the uh, t- I worked the uh, Yankees Twins um, debacle. I think is the word you're you're year, talking yeah. about. The debacle. I mean, what's uh, yeah? Well, <laughs> for the my Twins, anyway. Oldest son, uh, my oldest son, who was born in White Plains, New York, because I was working at RKO at the time, uh, is a Yankees fan, uh, and uh, he had gotten tickets for that. Uh, for the one game we had at Target Field, and and so this this is really a commentary on fatherhood. I I wanted the Twins to win as an usher because I didn't want the season to end, but I was pretty happy because my kid was happy. Aww. I was working uh, the dugout boxes along the first base side, and and I was literally uh, you know twenty thirty feet away from home plate, so I had a good view, and I would kept looking. Back up to my son uh, during the game. Ecstatic, and, uh, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. Baseball's so great. I, it's just, uh, it's just. I know it's not the cool sport anymore, but it's I, I, there isn't anything that comes close to it. I agree. I totally agree. Yeah. Now, amongst your um, side hustles that have been described in the past is being an usher, yeah. right? I read that you yep. were driving a lift. As well, I did. I did that while I was working at NPR. When? When did you do that? Uh, yeah. Like, you have a full time uh, job. Yes. Yeah, I would get off. I would do my uh, 420 bit with Mary Lucia <laughs> on the current, which I loved and missed terribly. Um, 
And then I would run out and hop in the car and turn on the app and, and I would just see where people were going. And, and it was like, it was like riding a raft down a river. You just went wherever people needed to go. And it was always interesting to see where you would end up at later in the evening. And people were just really interesting. And it was kind of a natural extension of uh, news cut, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, because everybody who got in, you had know, a story. if they wanted to talk, had a story. Mm-hmm. I, I, I even got a couple of news cuts out of it. And I liked doing it. It was, you know, I didn't do it for the money, although the money was nice or, at that time. And then I stopped doing that. When Lyft went public, uh, they cut the driver pay significantly. Mm. So it was... It wasn't worth it. And then when my hearing started to go even worse than it already was, I couldn't hear people. Um, so there was like no reason to continue doing it. And you've, t- you've talked about your hearing loss before, and, and I've, I've yeah. read that that's the, one of the reasons you retired from NPR. Yeah, it's the reason I retired. And you um, have something called Meniere's disease. Yeah, Meniere's is an uh, inner ear uh, disease. It's, uh, there's no cure. They don't know what causes it. Um, but it results in hearing loss. Uh, but more importantly, it uh, Meniere's attack is violent vertigo, mm. including nausea and throwing up and the whole thing that can last several hours. And, uh, and eventually it leaves you deaf. In a minority of cases, it will jump to the good ear and it will go after that. And that's what happened with me. Oh, no. You know, you don't really know when the attacks are going to come. And that was difficult to be in the radio business and have people depending on you to be somewhere. There was a morning I was supposed to fill in, I think, for Carrie Miller. Um, And I had done all the research for the show we were going to do. And uh, I had an attack that morning. So at the last minute, I had to cancel. And I felt really bad Mm. about that. I never wanted to. I was always very dependable. And I don't like being somebody that people can't depend on. I think the next night I had another attack. And I just sent off an email to the boss saying, that's it. I'm retiring when a day I turn 65 and qualify for Medicare. Mm-hmm. And I had been kind of waiting them out, hoping I could get a buyout. Um, <laughs> I think they had waited me out, hoping that I would retire first. <laughs> and I, I didn't have anything. Le- I had nothing left to say on Newscut. And um, so it, it made perfect sense. And how has that affected your side hustles? Like you had mentioned, you can't do the Lyft well, driving anymore. Yeah, I did some door dashing. I love driving, for one thing. Mm. That's one of the reasons. I, I wasn't going to take Social Security until my actual retirement age, which was 66 this past May. These couple of side hustles and use the money to pay for my Medicare premiums and and stuff like that. And, and the door dash was great because I would only do it for a couple hours in the afternoon. So I could listen to Tom Cran and All Things Considered and Marketplace and The Daily while I drove around, And uh, whereas before I wasn't really able to listen to it. And so that was kind of cool. I haven't done much of that, though. And, of course, then I had the twins uh, also. So I was keeping pretty busy. And uh, the hard part now is, is, uh, is, you know, people are wearing masks, so you can't mm-hmm. really... I really need to see people's lips uh, moving, mm. you know. So, I guess that begs the question, how are you doing this interview? 
remarkably well. Uh, it's working well. Uh, the, the hard part of this was um, a lot of the Meniere's attacks are the result of stress. And you start thinking about what if I can't, you know, if you have a commitment, what if I have an attack? And then it just gets worse and worse. So step one was just being able to do the interview, which mm-hmm. is, wasn't a problem. Uh, I have these nice headphones and microphone that you sent me, and and I have to take the hearing aids out because of the feedback. And that was the same thing when I, when I was uh, doing the news on the current. You'd have to wear headphones, and I was able to hear okay as long as, as long as I have some headphones. I I went flying a couple of months ago because I had built this plane, which I eventually had to sell. Now I'm building another. And I did find that with those headphones now in the plane, I cannot hear the radio, uh, which is a bad thing. <laughs> uh, so my flying days may be over. Yeah. How do you just build a plane and then have the guts to fly it and then sell it and then build another plane? Like, <laughs> what? Why did you build a plane? Uh, well, I wanted a plane. <laughs> and I couldn't afford to buy one. Like, you know, they're expensive. Mm-hmm. And so it turns out that this area, Minnesota, is one of the uh, hotbeds of uh, home-built airplanes. Um, really? And, yeah, this area, Texas and the Pacific Northwest. Mm. So uh, there was plenty of people that I could talk to to see what was involved. Now, I flunked shop in high school, so I was a little concerned uh, about this. <laughs> but there's a very popular line of uh, home-built airplanes called the Vans Aircraft. Uh, Vans Air Force, we call it. And uh, these, these, uh, the tooling on these things has just gotten so good over the years that you're doing more assembling than building. So I started building this one in 2001 uh, because I was convinced my kids at that time were small. I was, I was convinced that uh, they'd go to college back east and this is how I could visit them quite often. Uh, so it took 11 years as it turned out. I went and delivered the Pioneer Press every morning while working at NPR for 10 years because uh, I didn't want the money for the project. I didn't want it to come out of the family budget. And uh, so I finally finished this plane, and I had a test pilot do the first, first flight. And it was just a, it was a wonderful plane. It was well built, and it just did everything I asked it to do. And I, I flew it back uh, three or four times to uh, my mom's, to my hometown to see my mom. And, but once this Meniere's kicked in and got worse, um, mm. there was no way the FAA mm-hmm. was going to give me a medical certificate to continue flying. So I, I sold it to a guy over in Grand Rapids, Michigan, a great guy. And uh, the last time I flew was when I delivered it to him one very cold December uh, day. But there's a funny story about that. Uh, he's a professor of uh, mathematics at this uh, college in Grand Rapids. And he took this uh, woman out for their first date, and they went f- and they went flying. And uh, it turns out that they fell in love, and when they got engaged uh, a year ago, they he contacted me and invited me to the wedding. Wow! Uh, because it wouldn't have, it wouldn't have happened without, without the, the plane. plane I built. Wow! <laughs> That's a great uh, story. Uh, yeah. Are you are you did the plane have a name? Do you name planes? I think you name planes. No, I don't. We call it Auntie Marge, <laughs> uh, but I didn't. It doesn't really have a name like you do with a boat. Uh, but it was just a. It was a great plane, and it turned out when I finished uh, building it, and you 
develop a lot of skills when you build an airplane and no you have doubt. a lot of tools also. Mm. Yeah, it turns out I missed the building part of things. And there is this category of uh, called light sport in which you don't need a medical certificate to fly. And so I started building this uh, second plane, in, um, which goes a lot slower and stuff, but different model, same company. How far into it are you? Uh, it'll, it could fly next year. I just, uh, I'm doing some fiberglass work now. I just got the engine on it and just installed that. I've got, uh, avionics I've still got to buy and, uh, you know, some nipping and tucking and sanding and stuff. And so maybe sometime next year, I don't know if I'll be able to fly it or not, but, uh, if not, I'll sell it to somebody and I'll build another one. Gives me something to do. <laughs> and maybe get invited to another wedding. <laughs> Could be a whole sideline. <laughs> move over, move over, Tinder. <laughs> yeah. yeah, right. <laughs> well, thank you so much for spending your time with me today, Bob. It's been so great talking to you and finding out about your life and how how things have evolved. And I hope to see you at a Twins game. Well, I'll be there. I'll let you know on Twitter what 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 position I'm in, and uh, you can come find me. I'll do that, <laughs> and, we'll, and we'll talk, and we'll let people go down while we're talking. We'll just let people go down the aisles as they wish. <laughs> that sounds great. Thanks so much, Bob. Thank you very much for being interested. Bob Collins is the creator of the Newscut blog and served in many roles, including senior news editor at Minnesota Public Radio. You can find him on Twitter. He's at MyLittleBloggy. You've been listening to the 107 Podcast. Find us online at 107.com slash podcast. And if you have a second, do send us a message. We love hearing from you. Our email address is podcast at 107.com. Until next time, this is Ivan Stegich. Thanks for listening. 